Hello and welcome to our episode on Heart Success Podcast. We will be talking about a non-heart failure related topic considering everything that has been going on around us. Really our lives have been affected by the new pandemic, a coronavirus disease 2019 or COVID-19 outbreak. We live in a different time right now than we did even two weeks ago. Hospitals are running out of personal protective equipment, face masks, gowns, N95 masks. Because pharmacies are running out of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. People are actually hoarding up on supplies and a lot of these vital vital resources that healthcare workers need to be continuing to deal with this viral pandemic. We do have healthcare workers who listen to this episode. Uh, I, I think it would really be beneficial to listen to someone who's on the front line of all this, someone who's directly dealing with patients with COVID-19 patients with acute respiratory issues admitted to hospitals. So I thought I'd ask an intensive care specialist who is currently dealing with the outbreak in New York to come share some of his experiences and some of his expertise with us. As of today, which is the 22nd of March when I am recording this episode, there are over 30,000 cases coronavirus positive within the United States, almost half of them in the state of New York, a lot of them within the city of New York. I know most of you are aware of what this is, but this is a novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, or known as the COVID-19, the Coronavirus Disease 2019, initially uh, spread through China, has now affected people in multiple nations. You know, the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 marks the third introduction of a highly pathogenic and a large-scale epidemic coronavirus into the human population in the 21st century. The previous two being SARS-CoV in 2002 and the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, which is MERS-CoV in 2012. And, and this virus is unique because the SARS-CoV-2 belongs to the beta coronavirus with highly identical genome to bat coronavirus, pointing to the bat as a natural host. The novel coronavirus uses the same receptor, which is the ACE2 or the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, as that of the SARS coronavirus in 2002 and mainly spreads through the respiratory tract. We will talk a little bit more about the ACE2 aspect of this in our cardiovascular episode, which we'll follow up later this week. It's also a very rapidly evolving topic, because as we go on, we're receiving more and more data, we're noticing more and more data for using drugs like like remdesivir, which was developed, uh, which was being developed for the treatment of Ebola virus infection. And chloroquine has made a comeback because of some of the recent data that that we will go into more details towards the end of the episode. We have an expert with us who's in the front line of all this, uh, Dr. Udit Chada. We will be talking about the coronavirus, COVID-19 specifically today. And Udit, uh, if you don't mind just introducing yourself and telling us what you do. Yeah, thank you, Mahek, and thank you for having me on the podcast. So I am uh, an assistant professor of medicine and thoracic surgery and the associate director of bronchoscopy at uh, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. I do spend most of my time uh, doing procedures, uh, uh, bronchoscopies, thoracoscopies, etc. under the realm of interventional pulmonology, but also do work in the ICU, uh, mainly uh, through shifts and uh, with the increasing need of additional workforce in the uh, ICU. Uh, I think that'll become more and more common. Thank you. And, you know, I'm a cardiologist working 100 miles from where you are in Philadelphia, but certainly New York is really in the thick of this. And and what is it like in New York right now? 
in in the public mindset it's it's a state of panic by and large people are following the social distancing uh, if you walk around the streets the streets are quiet the air is clear uh, you can see stars at night <laughs> but but in in the hospitals too uh, there there is a lot of panic with uh, healthcare workers calling in sick colleagues of mine getting affected uh, with suspected or confirmed covid-19 and uh, basically people running around a lot uh, working extra hours worrying about the shortage of uh, ppe that we have in uh, new york city just to be clear ppe is personal protective equipment to Absolutely, protect healthcare yeah. workers yep mm-hmm. yes we were grateful to you that you're out there really doing all this work, working in the ICU, working with a lot of these sick COVID-19 positive patients. So why don't we just go into what this virus is and a little bit of background on the virus before we go into things that our medical listeners would really be interested in, details on diagnosis, symptoms, management, and and, and some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in the U.S., we are used to four seasonal forms of coronavirus Um at the end of 2019 in December, a novel form of coronavirus uh, caused an acute respiratory illness epidemic starting in Wuhan, China. And it was called the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2 virus. And the WHO termed the illness caused by this virus as COVID-19 or Coronavirus Disease 2019. Uh, predominantly a respiratory pathogen, but as we are seeing in uh, in uh, people admitted to the ICU, it does lead to multi-organ failure, cytokine storm, etc. Why don't we talk about how the virus spreads? What are the symptoms and maybe timeline of progression depending on the severity of disease? Mm-hmm. So uh, we don't have good data on the number of people that can be asymptomatic uh, uh, because we don't know how many people have truly been infected uh, with the virus until we test everyone. A good uh, way to sort of figure this out was in the Diamond Princess cruise where everyone on board was tested and it is estimated that about 30% of the population there was uh, asymptomatic but infected with coronavirus. So asymptomatic carriage and spread of infection is common but uh, by and large most people do get symptomatic and the symptoms can range from mild uh, to severe, uh, all the way up to critical illness. And the mild symptoms usually present uh, as fever, cough, uh, and maybe malaise with some people having a sore throat or GI symptoms. Uh, what is unique about this coronavirus so far, it seems like, is the upper respiratory symptoms associated with the flu, like congestion in your sinuses, runny nose, aren't that common. But we don't have, uh, you know, it, it's not sufficient to say that if you do have those symptoms, you can exclude coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And then on the other extreme, when um, uh, since this is predominantly a low respiratory tract pathogen, people do manifest with pneumonia. And pneumonia too, characteristically going through phases. And on CAT scan, you can see this as lower, low predominant subpleural ground gas opacities, which progress to consolidation and uh, involving the whole lung. Many people often get ARDS, a viral form of ARDS. Again, what we're also seeing pretty often in these uh, sick people is a cytokine storm uh, leading to multi-organ failure with um, manifestations uh, including myocarditis and uh, other end-organ failure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, in terms of numbers, it is estimated that about 80 to uh, 80% of the people will have a mild illness. Another 
15% uh, have a little more severe illness that may require hospitalization. 5% have critical illness requiring um, maybe mechanical ventilation or other advanced forms of support. And about uh, 2% uh, have a mortality. Now, the mortality, as we know, varies in age group. There have been no convincing reports of anyone dying below the age of 10. But below the age of 40, the mortality is 0.1%. And if you go above the age of 80, it's uh, higher than 15%. Now, this data, of course, comes from um, China. And then we have similar reports coming out of other countries. In the U.S. too, so far, what we are seeing is there is this general 2 to 3% mortality. And uh, again, since we don't have good data, it's difficult to come up with the exact numbers. But the elderly and people with comorbid conditions like diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, etc., are the ones that uh, seem to have the short end of the straw in this. But again, you know, being in the ICU, we see a biased population. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing uh, young people, no comorbid conditions, who end up on the ventilator and, and sometimes don't do that well. Uh, it's difficult to know what, what the true epidemiology is. I guess only time will tell. Thank you. How do you diagnose this disease? Is one way of diagnosing more sensitive than others? And what is the sensitivity range for most of the testing? So since it's predominantly a respiratory pathogen, we've been um, limiting ourselves so far to upper respiratory sampling, which is a nasopharyngeal or an oropharyngeal swab, because this is very easy to do. And uh, the PCR-based test that has been studied has a sensitivity of only 65 to 70%. As you know, we've moved to a lot of private-based uh, uh, com uh, companies in the U.S. testing, as well as now many hospitals doing in-house testing, including where I work at Mount Sinai. What the exact sensitivity of these tests are, we don't know, but we estimate it to be similar in the 65 to 70% sensitivity range for oropharyngeal and nasopharyngeal swabs. Lower respiratory samples are thought to have more sensitivity, but uh, a higher sensitivity, but we don't really know that. I mean, most of the data comes from just one study. And, uh, you know, if you do a tracheal aspirate, it's better than a nasopharyngeal swab. But we don't really know how much better a bronchoalveolar lavage is. So this is something I deal with on a daily basis. So right now, we don't have any good indication to perform a bronchoscopy on a patient who is suspected with COVID-19 but negative on nasopharyngeal swabs. So what we are doing is in patients who are suspected and have a negative result, but we still have a high index of suspicion, either based on the history or the CAT scan or any other lab markers, uh, we repeat the test in 12 to 24 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, viral shedding is also common in the stool and in other bodily fluids. You can detect uh, viral uh, RNA in, in, in multiple areas, but the predominant form of testing right now is uh, is nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal. Okay. Considering the sensitivities in the 65 to 75% range, um, are you commonly doing more than one uh, test to, to get a higher sensitivity? So this is not, there is no guideline. Um, on how to manage these people. Uh, so what I'm going to say, Iran, is just what we practice and what a lot of my colleagues yeah. through personal discussions practice. Uh, mm -hmm. if, so in people who are not that sick and you're quarantining them at home, if you have a high index of suspicion, coronavirus, PCR is negative, uh, you know, there is no harm in saying that quarantine yourself for another 14 days and uh, prevent the spread for the greater good of the society. Uh, it gets more challenging in people who are hospitalized because then you need to make treatment decisions. 
which we'll talk about later. But in hospitalized patients, we, we strongly consider uh, a lot of these medications that don't have good evidence behind them. But we have no other choice. Uh, but we're also, you know, limited in supplies. So it's always a challenge as to whether you should treat someone empirically. Right now, we're not doing that. Uh, but in somebody who's in the hospital, i.e. sick, um, if they have a negative PCR, we repeat it again. Um, mm-hmm. If they are bad enough to be on the ventilator, then we definitely repeat a lower respiratory tract uh, sample. And that means a tracheal aspirate usually. Now, there are nonspecific markers like uh, CRP level that is usually very high in people who have COVID-19. Procalcitonin level is usually low because low or normal because it's it's a viral pathogen and not a bacterial pathogen. And um, another thing we routinely test for is IL-6, which we can talk about a little later. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult decision. And, and we retest if we suspect uh, that the patient truly, truly has COVID-19. But the higher the viral load, uh, logically, the better the sensitivity sh- there should be. So it's not as often a clinical conundrum as I'm making it sound. No, fair enough. And, and the argument you're making is your viral load is typically higher when you are more sicker or more advanced in, in the stage of disease. Presumably, yes. The only reason I brought this up is because dealing with heart transplant patients as policy, again, not guided by data, we have been doing at least two nasopharyngeal swabs in our transplant patients for suspected COVID-19 just to maintain adequate sensitivity, again, in the absence of good data guiding this practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing I did want to bring about the risk for co-infection, because there's some data coming up where uh, if you have someone who is, let's say, influenza A positive, mm-hmm. could you still go ahead and just look for COVID-19 in these patients as well? Yeah, so this is a moving ball. I mean, three weeks back, we were in a meeting at my hospital and I discussed it with my colleagues. And because the incidence was so low and uh, testing was so sparse, uh, we decided no, that, you know, how common is it going to be that somebody has rhinovirus or RSV and also has COVID-19? So we were initially using the respiratory viral biofire as a rule-out test for coronavirus if any of the other viral PCRs came back positive. And then we have data now from uh, from Stanford, I think, where uh, the small study, but but very, very important study has showed us that, uh, you know, up to 20% of the people could have another viral co-pathogen. And now with uh, widespread testing, especially here in New York City, and with in-house testing, as I have at Mount Sinai, with, uh, with you know, a turnaround time of three to six hours, we're going ahead and testing everyone, even if we have a positive flu, because co-infection, as we know, can be true. Though it's not that common, it's not that common, but, but we'd still go ahead and test everyone for it. Before we even start about managing the disease, I think the first thing we want to do is protect the healthcare workers, you, me, the staff, the nurses, all the different people in the hospital who are directly involved in taking care of these patients. So mm-hmm. how do we protect the healthcare worker? This is important because a lot of studies coming out show upwards of 10% of all the patients infected are healthcare workers, which means we are at risk. So how do we protect the healthcare worker? Yeah, and I'm sure those numbers will go up. As you know, we do social distancing with uh, the general public staying at home, the healthcare workers being the only people in contact with these patients. I'm sure those numbers will go up, biasedly, but I'm sure they'll be higher. It's an area of controversy. I mean, the CDC changed the isolation guidelines from uh, being airborne to being droplet. And it seems like that decision largely came about from a resource utilization standpoint. 
Uh, and and that's a real issue, and I can talk about that a little later. But right now, we don't have enough masks, uh, N95 masks in the in the country. So right now, the recommendations are, and this is being followed by I think every hospital I know, for patients who are not undergoing aerosol generating procedures, you need to practice standard droplet precautions. But if you are in contact with a patient with coronavirus, standard droplet precautions specifically means that you need a mask, a regular surgical medical mask, you need a face shield, gown, gloves, and plus minus shoe protection. In people who you do aerosol generating procedures on, for example, bronchoscopy, uh, endotracheal intubation, even something as simple as, you know, suctioning somebody who's on the ventilator. Um, if you disconnect somebody from the ventilator temporarily while, uh, while they're in the ICU, you know, the virus gets aerosolized non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, BiPAP, uh, and maybe controversially, but uh, high-flow nasal cannula at higher flow, flow rates, up to uh, if you're in the 40 to 60 range specifically, leads to aerosolization. So in any of these aerosol-generating procedures, we do full airborne precautions. So we wear an N95 mask. In addition to you know wearing a face shield, uh, wearing a gown, gloves, uh, and I usually double glove uh, because it just makes the doffing process a lot uh, less contaminated. Now, uh, there's a lot of talk about using PAPRs, and most places in the U.S. are not using PAPRs, and uh, my understanding of it for my uh, infection control team is that uh, doffing PAPRs in an uncontaminated way is very challenging. Also, the number of PAPRs that uh, we have in the hospital, or any hospital may have, is not going to be enough. I mean, we are struggling to get N95 masks um, just so if I can give you a real-world situation, I was working in the ICU last night. Each provider at the start of the shift was given one N95 mask and one face shield for the whole shift because we didn't have enough in the hospital. And I'm talking about a big tertiary care, big tertiary care center, and this is the case in all big hospitals. So, you know, at this point, what do you do? You improvise. So what I would do is I would wear an N95 mask, and on top of that, I would wear a regular surgical mask when I'd see these patients so that what gets contaminated with the droplets is the surgical mask. And then when I exit the room, I doff only the surgical mask and reuse the N95. Now, this is not backed by data. If I keep doing this, am I actually putting myself and others at more risk? I don't know. But, uh, you know, we're, we're having to be <laughs> innovative at this time. And people are coming up with even other things, as you mentioned at the start of this uh, podcast. Yes, of course. Both alcohol-based sanitizers and soap destroy the envelope protein that surrounds the virus, including coronavirus. The protein is vital for the virus's survival and multiplication, so it's important to use soap and water as your first line for cleaning hands, and you want to be very thorough when you do this. When you're using hand sanitizers, it needs, it needs to have at least 60% of alcohol in order to kill most viruses in order to be more effective. How important is hand washing? And how important is using the sanitizer uh, on a regular basis when you're going in and out of rooms uh, to protect yourself from this? So it seems like uh, a lot of the transmission is through fomites. Uh, mm -hmm. We know that coronavirus can survive outside the body. There's one study on this uh, which shows that its pattern of survival on non-living surfaces is uh, similar to the other SARS virus two decades back. And it, it seems like, you know, it's different from different surfaces. Uh, for example, on cardboard, 
the coronavirus survives about four hours, but on surfaces like plastic, it could be up to two to three days, metallic surfaces, similar time. So it varies, but, but the scary part is it is surviving outside the body for up to two days uh, mm-hmm. on inanimate in, objects. So, you know, somebody touches a doorknob or a keyboard that you're using at work, and then you go ahead and touch something there. It, it's, it's risky because then you can uh, touch the virus and then you touch your face, mainly your eyes, nose, your mouth, any mucous membrane. You're going to transmit that bacteria to yourself. Yep. So it is it is extremely important to one not touch your face, but two to keep washing your hands in in a very thorough way. You go through the seven steps of hand washing. You know, palms in between the fingers, the thumb, the web space, the back of the hands, the wrist, the, the nails, etc. It's very important to do this, and uh, we do this several times a day because we are going to unintentionally keep touching uh, surfaces. I mean, the average human touches their face two to three times a minute in one study that I read. Uh, I don't think I do it that often, but you know, we all, no. we all, we all subconsciously <laughs> when we're at work, we, we touch our face. So yeah. it's extremely important to, to maintain high hygiene standards at work and away from work as well. Very true. No, I keep touching my glasses. I keep, keep putting them in back in place. So, Absolutely. The other, so, the, so just on that topic, so what we are doing is that, you know, uh, big fomites, your glasses, your phones, everything like that. So when I leave the hospital, I change my clothes right before leaving, but I okay. also disinfect my phone. I disinfect, uh, I mean, my ID badge, you should disinfect your glasses and then make your way home and shower before you hug your wife. That's a good point. Or your spouse. Um, yes, yes. I'm not to belabor this point further on personal protective equipment. But uh, when the ACC webinar, the ACC uh, did a webinar, which is the American College of Cardiology, did a webinar with physicians in Wuhan who were in the middle of this, who directly dealt with this, who strongly advised use of face masks at all times while in the hospital. And most hospitals, because of lack of resources, hasn't fully published this as as policy because, of course, if you put that as a policy, you have to provide the masks. But mm-hmm. I think Mass General Hospital is one of the first hospitals in this country to demand that all their their physicians and healthcare workers should be wearing face masks in the hospital. So maybe the future uh, is going to be in that direction. So I would recommend if you do have a face mask, maybe you want to keep it on at all times. And that's what I've been asking my teams, my residents, my fellows to do while they're in the hospital. Going to management, um, going into how do you manage these these patients? So a little bit about the isolation, now you did touch upon that. And then a little bit on the oxygenation, what different strategies do you use in these patients? So largely the management is supportive, which is unfortunate. Like most viral illnesses, uh, we do not have any good evidence that any medication works in, uh, in improving patient-centered outcomes or improving, you know, viral shedding. I mean, we give them oxygen, we monitor them, we isolate them. If they need NEBS, they need NEBS. Uh, if they get bad enough to require ICU level care, we put them on the ventilator. We manage them with our typical ARDS protocol, low tidal volume ventilation. But uh, there are some uh, nuances to managing patients with uh, COVID-19. Uh, number one, in uh, we are concerned about aerosolization of the virus with certain maneuvers like non-invasive positive pressure and maybe even a high-flow nasal cannula at higher flow rates. So if you don't have a negative pressure room, uh, doing one of these could expose workforce and house staff to the virus. 
so it is not recommended. So many people are sort of practicing an early intubation strategy, but that comes with its own complications because right now ICUs are getting full. We have a shortage of ventilators. So uh, I think now people are backing off a little bit and, you know, we are trying high-flow nasal cannula. In, in our ICU, we're, these patients so far uh, are largely in negative pressure rooms and we do put them on a high-flow nasal cannula if they can't oxygenate well on a nasal cannula. Uh, on a regular nasal cannula, but we ask them to wear a mask on top of it to minimize the aerosolization. It's important that the high flow has a tight seal, though. And similarly, if you are trying CPAP, uh, it should be in a negative pressure room and it should have a good seal uh, to minimize aerosolization. Again, once these patients are intubated, though, many of them seem to do well on positive pressure, uh, but many of them, uh, you know, seem to deteriorate. And we've had a low threshold to prone these folks. Again, backed by no solid evidence here. I mean, this is a new disease, so I'm, I'm just telling you anecdotes and uh, personal communications here. Um, and this, again, there's no good guidelines on this. But, uh, I mean, the, the Society of Critical Care Medicine just recently published some, but again, all everything they say is uh, low-quality evidence, weak recommendation. In terms of specifics in managing these patients, uh, a lot of interest about certain drugs, mainly hydroxychloroquine and uh, also known as plaquenil and azithromycin. Uh, there is no good studies on this either. I mean, uh, there is one study which reduces viral shedding, but th that that was a small study out of France, and um, there were no patient-centered outcomes that were looked at. Uh, mm -hmm. Besides, uh, besides, I mean, um, oh, th there is there is some in vitro data that this may help, and you know, hydroxychloroquine has been used in the past, uh, or at least studied in the past, with not much good result. But right now, our hands are tied. We're clutching to straws. So what we do do is until we have better evidence, we're giving everyone who requires hospitalization or is hypoxic to less than 94% on room air, hydroxychloroquine, 400 milligrams BID on the first day, and then 400 milligrams daily or 200 milligrams BID um, after that. And we're combining it with azithromycin. Uh, again, in the one small study, azithromycin had an added benefit. But, you know, there are challenges with this. I mean, uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, is a pregnancy category D drug. Uh, you have to adjust for renal and hepatic clearance. You have to keep checking EKGs, as you know better than I do, for QTC prolongation. Then the other drugs that are that are being studied, and then one of them which was used pretty widely initially was uh, the protease inhibitor, antiretrovirals, uh, lopinavir and uh, ritonavir, uh, coletra. And uh, after the New England Journal trial, I think most hospitals have taken this off their protocol. The New England Journal trial, very briefly, uh, was a 200-patient trial, 199 with 101 group and uh, a control group of standard care, um, which included uh, 99 patients, I think. And, uh, you know, there was no improvement in mortality or any other major outcome. There were more side effects, of course, with the drug. So we're not using that anymore. Uh, when we do clutch to straws, then we, we go for, for some big guns like tocilizumab. Now, tocilizumab is an um, IL-6 drug. And, uh, you know, in people who have this cytokine storm, there are anecdotes coming out of China. There's a small study on 20 patients who were critically ill there. And uh, most of them, 19 out of the 20, did well with tocilizumab. Uh, and that's what we're trying. So our order set for patients with COVID-19 includes a reflex test to IL-6. And if the IL-6 level is high and patients behave like they have this cytokine storm, you know, we go ahead and we give them one dose of tocilizumab and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And the other drug which is being uh, studied is uh, rem remdesivir. Remdesivir, uh, 
again, no good studies. We have to obtain it uh, on compassionate use from Kildare uh, Pharmaceuticals, and it, it's becoming increasingly difficult to get right now. There are clinical trials, so this is not a medicine that we are using that often just because, one, there's no good evidence like every other drug, and uh, two, uh, we're waiting for clinical trials to, to show something. Yeah. Maybe some role for hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin combination, remdesivir, and tocilizumab. Biomarkers, you mentioned me- measuring CRP and IL-6 in certain cases. Um, mm-hmm. are, is there, are, you, are you checking proponents and echoes in any patients? Because I know there's a lot of reports coming out with patients getting myocarditis, especially when they're getting better from the respiratory standpoint. Mm-hmm. I know this is, again, a small, we're just beginning to see all these cases and, and a lot of the data is coming from Italy or China. Mm-hmm. But no, we haven't been trending proponents. We haven't been checking echoes on everyone. Uh, as you know, in the ICU, we love our bedside ultrasound, so we use that as a screen. But uh, I, th- I think doing this on every single patient will overburden our cardiology colleagues. Everyone's going to have a slightly elevated troponin, maybe some NSTEMI type 2. Uh, I'm not sure, but, but either way, we don't do this as a reflex in terms of trending these uh, uh, blood tests or, or checking an echo on every single patient who comes in. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Udit. That was great. Um, I do want to touch base on the last thing I think we didn't, we didn't touch base upon is the masks. So right now we brought about using face masks, surgical masks, uh, the, the surgical face masks with eye protection, the paper masks and the N95s. Considering the shortage and the way you've been using them, one N95 mask for a whole shift on the internet, of course, you find all kinds of stuff on the internet. Now I'm finding all these different masks being broadcast as our saviors you know these some masks using bounty as your face <laughs> the other one was using cloth masks and people i think it is done in good intent people have good intentions of course of course yeah. uh, but but what do you have something you want to say about using these alternate masks in in uh, these times yeah so again first of all no good evidence the reason we are okaying surgical or medical masks is predominantly from a Lancet paper from SARS where, you know, healthcare providers did not have infection with it as much, uh, whether you use an N95 or you use a regular surgical or medical mask. So that data has been extrapolated to COVID-19. There's a lot of uh, talk about using bandanas and cloth masks. And there's a study from, G- uh, from BMJ, which shows that, you know, the rate of acquiring infections is much higher compared to regular standard medical care. But again, you know, that study did not compare it to doing nothing. <laughs> so are cloth masks better than doing nothing? Maybe, but they're definitely not as good as surgical masks. So this is something that healthcare providers for sure should not be using. That That is one thing we know for sure. In terms of the general public, I mean, I have no good recommendation for them. Is is it is using a cloth mask better than using nothing? Maybe, maybe not. But the concern always is that anything on your face is a fomite. You're not going to throw away your bandana after you meet somebody who coughs. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you take that bandana off and you touch it. It's a fomite for yourself. So I, I, uh, there are strong concerns of everyone using these, but healthcare providers for now should not be venturing into this. What we are closely looking at is 3D printed masks. Um, and, uh, you know, they're different materials, but mainly uh, we're using a HEPA filter, which is being attached at the end that a few hospitals now are trying out. And maybe this shows something uh, that, that may be useful and covers up for this uh, inadequate supply of N95s that we currently have. Thank you so much for your time, Odit. Thank you for everything you've been doing. And 
good luck to you and your team. Um, I, I, these are tough times. And uh, thank you for lending your time to our podcast. The honor's been all mine. Thank you for your time and stay safe. Thank you, Mike. I will spend a little more time talking about chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine because there is such a renewed interest in this drug. As you may know, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine today is being really used for treating or prophylaxing against malaria infections and in the treatment of certain autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid or lupus. The way you look at this drug is it's it's from the DeMarg classification, which is disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. They demonstrate strong immunomodulatory capacity, which prevents inflammation flare-ups and organ damage. Chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are considered to be immunomodulators rather than immunosuppressants, particularly hydroxychloroquine, because it increases intracellular pH and inhibits lysosomal activity in antigen-presenting cells, and that's basically how it works. But the way it actually helps in coronavirus is that by increasing intracellular pH, it actually inhibits viral replication because such a process prefers an acidic environment. Let's go into the data that, that may support using this drug in, in some of the inpatients affect, infected or affected by the COVID-19. Before I go into the efficacy data, I think it's important to focus on some of the safety data. Hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have a relatively reasonable safety record. Uh, they are well distributed throughout the whole body after oral administration, especially in acidic compartments such as your lysosomes and inflamed tissues. Because they're immunomodulators and not immunosuppressants, they do not really bring forth risk for infectious complications. However, they do have GI side effects such as vomiting and diarrhea, which are the most common. There are some long-term side effects, uh, which are which can be severe, like retinopathy, you know, cardiomyopathy in some of these patients as well, QTC prolongation in these drugs, especially when combined with azithromycin, because both drugs will increase your QTC. QTC prolongation may increase the risk for torsade and some of these arrhythmias, even though we don't have a lot of data saying this is very common. Uh, it is reasonable to be, be cautious of this side effect. I want to spend the next three to five minutes talking about the study that has really made it into national news and is all over social media, which is hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin as a treatment for COVID-19 results of an open-label, non-randomized clinical trial. It is published in the International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents. It was made available online two days ago. This study was done in France. It was French-confirmed COVID-19 patients were included in a single-arm protocol from early March to March 16 to receive 600 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine daily, and their viral load in nasopharyngeal swabs was tested daily in a hospital setting. Depending on their clinical presentation, azithromycin was added to the treatment. Untreated patients from a different center and cases refusing the protocol were included as negative controls. Presence and absence of virus in the nasopharyngeal swab at day 6 post-inclusion was considered the endpoint. A little bit of an issue with this because I want to focus on the fact that controls were commonly from a different hospital. These are not clinical endpoints. And the sensitivity of using nasal swabs commonly is actually 65 to 75%. So it's a test which is not very sensitive. The study actually initially included a total of 36 patients, but we don't have data on 36 patients because there's dropout, which we'll go into in just a bit. So a small study with significant dropout. And let's talk about what the results of this study was. 
So there were 20 patients in the hydroxychloroquine treated arm and 16 patients in the control arm. At day three post-inclusion, the number of patients with negative uh, nasopharyngeal swabs for COVID-19 was 50% in the hydroxychloroquine arm and 6.3% in the control arm. When you look at day five post-inclusion, 13 of 20, which is 65% of the patients in the medication arm, tested negative for the virus compared to 3 of 16, 18.8% in the control arm. What was more important or what grabbed even more eyeballs was the fact that among those patients who received both azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine, total of six patients, all 100% of them achieved virological clearance by day six. Now, the study showed something very important, and I agree that it needs to be tested further, but they showed that in a very small proportion of patients, using hydroxychloroquine, possibly with azithromycin, significantly increased viral clearance. It becomes relevant because if you look at data coming from China on viral shedding in patients suffering from COVID-19, the mean duration of viral shedding was 20 days and actually 37 days for someone with the longest duration. It was not a randomized study, and while I mentioned that there were 36 patients in the study, there were a total of 42 patients that met the inclusion criteria. However, data was only available for 36 patients. There were six patients um, who were treated with hydroxychloroquine for whom data was not included in this study because they were lost in follow-up during the survey. It's important that three of this of these sick patients were transferred to the ICU. One patient decided to leave the hospital. One patient stopped the treatment because of nausea. And one patient actually died on day three, post-inclusion. So we have six patients that we don't even have data for and possibly did not have great outcomes uh, depending on this, which would affect the overall results of the study. So the results need to be taken with a grain of salt. There's also another paper that a Chinese team has published showing that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine inhibit SARS-CoV-2 in vitro, and actually hydroxychloroquine was found to be more potent than chloroquine. So you do have some in vitro data, some in vivo data, to set up the stage for future studies. A lot of the pharmacies in big cities have run out of this medication. In a lot of countries, people have hoarded up on these medications at home because of some of this data. And it's important to know that we don't have this medication available for people who may actually benefit. There are several studies that are either starting soon or have already started within the United States that will be looking at the efficacy of this drug and this drug combination in real-world patients. If you enjoyed our episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and give us a high rating as it helps other listeners find us. You can leave your suggestion for topics, critiques, things you think we can do better. You can email us at heartsuccessteam at gmail.com. You can actually find us on our website at www.heartsuccess.info. Our website now also provides links to all the podcast providers where you can listen to this episode. You can find us on our Facebook page at Heart Success Team, or you can always reach me on Twitter at CardioBro. Thank <laughs> you.